Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Hebrews 10.38 This also is purely hypothetical, as the if intimates. It announces what would follow should such a thing occur. To quote what is merely suppositionary rather than positive shows how weak the Arminian case is. That there is nothing here whatever for them to build upon is clear from the very wording and structure of the sentence. It is not, now the just shall live by faith, and if any man draw back... The, but if any man draw back, places him in opposition to the class spoken of in the first clause. This is further evident in what immediately follows. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Verse 39. Thus, so far from this passage, favoring the total apostasy of real saints, it definitely establishes the doctrine of their final perseverance. There shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. Second Peter 2, 1. Any seeming difficulty here is at once removed if attention be carefully paid to two things. First, it is not said they were redeemed, but only bought. The first man was given dominion over all things terrestrial. Genesis 1, 28. But by his fall, lost the same, and Satan took possession by conquest. Christ does not dispossess him by the mere exercise of divine power, but as the Son of Man he secured by right of purchase all that Adam forfeited. He buyeth that field, Matthew 13:44, which is the world, verse 39, that is the earth and all in it. Second, it is not said they were bought by Christ, but the Lord, and the Greek word is not the customary curios, as in verses 9, 11, and 20, but despotes, which signifies dominion and authority, translated masters, in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, Titus 2, 9, 1 Peter 2, 18. It was as a master he bought the world and all in it, acquiring thereby an unchangeable title as God-man to rule over it. He therefore has the right to demand the submission of every man, and all who deny him that right repudiate him as the despotes. Second Peter 2, 20-22 there are none of the distinguishing marks of God's children ascribed to the characters mentioned in this passage, nothing whatever about them to show they were ever anything more than formal professors. Attention to the following details will clarify and simplify these verses. 1. The pollutions of the world here escaped are the gross and outward defilements in contrast from the inward cleansing of the regenerate, as is clear from the again entangled therein. 2. It was not through faith in, but through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, that this reformation of conduct and amendment of walk was effected. 
3. These are not said to have loved the way of righteousness. Psalm 119.47 77 and 159, but merely to have known it. There is a twofold knowledge of the truth, natural and spiritual, theoretical and vital, ineffectual and transforming. It is only the former the apostates had. The heart of stone was never taken from them, for they were never saints or sheep, but dogs domesticated, and swine externally washed. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Jude 12 it is the words twice dead which the Arminian fastens upon, but we have quoted the whole verse that the reader may see that it is couched in the language of imagery. A manifestly figurative expression is taken literally. If twice dead, it is argued they were twice alive, the second time by the new birth, the life from which they had killed. The epistle in which this expression occurs supplies the key to it. Its theme is is apostasy of the Israelites, verse 5, angels, verse 6, and lifeless professors in Christendom, verses 8 through 19, from which the saints are preserved, verse 1, and kept, verse 24. Those of verse 12 were dead in sin by nature, and then by apostasy, by defection from the faith they once professed. I will not blot out his name, Revelation 3, 5, is a promise to the overcomer, every believer, 1 John 5, 4. Chapter 10, Its Benefits. It has been pointed out on a previous occasion that what has been engaging our attention is far more than a subject for theological debate. It is full of practical value. It must be so, for it occupies a prominent place in the divinely inspired scriptures which are profitable for doctrine, Second Timothy 3.16, and that because it is the doctrine which is according to godliness, First Timothy 6. 3. Revealing the standard of piety and actually promoting piety in the soul and life of him who receives it by faith. Everything revealed in the Word and all the activities of God have two chief ends in view, his own glory and the good of his people. And as we draw to the close of this book, it is fitting that we should seek to set before readers some of the benefits which are conferred by a believing apprehension of this truth, some of the blessed effects it produces and fruits. It yields. We somewhat anticipated this aspect of our subject by what we said under its blessedness in chapter 6 of this book. Yet, as we then did little more than generalize it, behooves us now to more definitely particularize. 
in attempting to describe some of the benefits which this doctrine affords. We shall be regulated by whether we are viewing it from the divine side or the human, for as we have sought to make clear in the preceding sections, the perseverance of the saints in holiness and obedience is the direct effect of the continued operations of divine grace and power within them, and those operations are guaranteed by the promises of the everlasting covenant. Viewed from the divine side, perseverance in the faith and in the paths of righteousness is itself a gift, a distinct gift from God, who shall also confirm you unto the end. First Corinthians 1, 8. Absolutely considered God's preservation of his people turns upon no condition to be fulfilled by them, but depends entirely on the immutability and invincibility of the divine purpose. Nevertheless, God does not preserve his people by mere physical power and without their concurrence, as he keeps the planets steadfast in their orbits. No, rather does he treat them throughout as moral agents and responsible creatures, drawing them with the cords of love, inclining their hearts unto himself, rendering effectual the motives he sets before them and the means which he requires them to use. The infallible certainty of the divine operations on behalf of and within his saints and the mode of their working cannot be insisted upon too emphatically or repeated too often. On the one hand, the crown of honor and glory must be ascribed to the king himself, and on the other hand, the response and concurrence or loyalty of his subjects is to be made equally plain. God preserves his people by renewing them in the inner man day by day. Second Corinthians 4.16 By quickening them according to his word, by granting them fresh supplies of grace and also by moving them to heed his warnings and respond to his exhortations. In a word, by working in them both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 Thus our portrayal of some of the benefits and fruits of this doctrine will be governed by our viewpoint, whether we trace out what follows faith appropriating of the divine promises, or what follows from faith's appropriation of the divine precepts. God has promised to carry forward in sanctification and complete in glorification the work begun in regeneration, yet not without requiring us to perform the duties of piety and avoid everything contrary thereto. 1. Here is cause for adoring God. The doctrine set forth in this book most certainly redounds more to the glory of God than does the contrary one which leaves our everlasting felicity in uncertainty. It exemplifies God's power whereby he not only restrains our external foes from overthrowing our salvation, but also by fixing the wavering disposition of our 
wills that we do not cease from the love of and desire after holiness. Also his truth in the promises of the covenant on which we securely rely, being assured that he who gave them will certainly make the same good, his goodness whereby he patiently bears with our weakness and dullness, so that when we fall into sin, he does not cast us off, but by his loving chastenings recovers us through moving us to renewed repentance, his holiness when... Because of our folly, we trifle with temptation for a season, disregarding his warnings. He makes us conscious of his displeasure by withholding tokens of his favor and declining an answer to our prayers, bringing us to confess and forsake our sins, that fellowship with him may be restored, and that peace and joy may again be our portion. Two, here is peace for the soul in a world of strife, and where men's hearts fail them for fear of the future. This is evident if we consider the opposite. In themselves, believers are weak and un stable, unable to do anything as they ought. They have no strength of their own to keep themselves in the love of God, but carry about with them a body of sin and death. They are continually exposed to temptations which ensnare the wisest and overthrow the strongest. Suppose then they had received no guarantee of the unchangeableness of God's purpose, no infallible word of the continuance of his love, no pledge that he will keep and secure them by the working of his mighty power, no declaration that unfailing supplies of his spirit and grace shall be vouchsafed them, no assurance that he will never leave them nor forsake them, no revelation of an advocate on high to plead their cause and of the sufficiency of his mediation and the efficacy of his intercession, but rather that they are left to their own fidelity, and in consequence some of the most eminent saints have apostatized from the faith that thousands have utterly fallen out of God's love and favor and so been cast from his covenant, from whence few have ever recovered and all confidence and peace will be at an end and fear and terror fill their place. How vastly different is the teaching of the word from what we have supposed above. There we find God, as it were, saying to his people, I know your weakness and insufficiency, your dullness and darkness, how that without my Son and continual supplies of his Spirit you can do nothing. The power and rage of your indwelling sin is not hidden from me, and how with violence it brings you into captivity against your desires. I know that though you believe, yet you are frequently made to groan over your unbelief, and that you are then ready to fear the worst. And when in that case, Satan assaults and tempts, 
seeking to devour you. That first he acts like a serpent, attempting to beguile and ensnare, and then as a lion to terrify. But be not ignorant of his devices. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Take unto you the whole armor of God. Watch night and day, that ye be not seduced by him, and you shall overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41.10 Though you may be tripped up, ye shall not utterly fall. Though ye be fearful, my kindness shall not be removed from you. So be of good cheer, and run with patience the race that is set before you you. 3. Here is solid comfort for the saints in a day of declension, when there is a great falling away of those who once appeared to run well, though what is termed organized Christianity be a demonstrated failure, though corporate Christendom be now in ruins, though ten thousands have apostatized, yet let the saints be fully assured that God has and will reserve to himself a remnant who bow not the knee to Baal, and therefore may those who have the living God for their refuge confidently exclaim, Therefore will not we fear, though the earth, the most stable and ancient establishments, be removed, and though the mountains, the leaders and most towering professors, be carried by the winds of a false doctrine into the midst of the sea. The masses of the wicked. Isaiah 57:20. When many of the nominal disciples of Christ sent back and walked no more with him, he turned to the apostles and said, Will ye also go away? Whereupon Simon Peter, as their spokesman, answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John six sixty six through sixty eight. Thus it was then, has been throughout the centuries, and will be unto the end of time. The sheep are secure, while the goats turn aside and perish. Observe how Paul emphasizes this very note in Second Timothy two. Hymenius and Philetus, eminent men in the church, had apostatized, and by their defection and false teaching had overthrown the doctrinal faith of some. Yet, says the apostle, this is no reason why the real children of God should be made to quake and imagine that their end is uncertain. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth assure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Verse 19. Note the two sides of that seal, preserving the balance of truth. On the one side there is a cordial, those who are built upon the foundation of God's unchanging purpose and love shall not be prevailed against. On the other, there is a warning. Trifle not with iniquity. 
whether it be doctrinal or practical, but depart from it. Similarly, John assures believers who might be shaken at seeing certain in their assemblies being seduced by the antichrists of that day, but such were only unregenerate professors, 1 John 2.19, and therefore that the regenerate held in the hand of Christ shall not be overcome by deceivers. 4. Here is ground for holy confidence. The Lord knows how difficult is the task assigned His people and how deep is the sense of their own insufficiency. He knows, too, that nothing more enervates their hearts and enfeebles their hands than doubts and fears. And therefore has He made absolute promise to those who hear His voice and follow Him that they shall never perish. John 10:29. It was this which armed Joshua to the battle. There shall not a man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And from thence the Lord drew an argument, the very opposite of that which the legalistic Arminian infers, namely, be strong and of a good courage. Joshua 1, 5 and 6. Such a promise would not make a Joshua reckless or lax, whatever effect it might have upon a self-righteous free willer. No, rather would it produce a holy confidence which prompted to the use of lawful means and gave assurance of God's blessing thereon. Such a confidence causes its possessor to trust in the Lord with all his heart and lean not unto his own understanding. Such encouragement is conveyed and such confidence is engendered by the divine declaration, the righteous shall hold on his way. Job 17, 9. As the young believer contemplates the likely length of the journey before him and the difficulties of the road which has to be trod, he is apt to give way to despair. But if his faith lays hold of this promise that he shall certainly reach the desired goal, new strength will be imparted to his feeble knees and increase resolution to his fainting heart. It is the confidence that by continuing to plod along, the weary traveler will reach home, which causes him to take courage and refuse to give in. It is the assurance of success, which is to the right-minded and best stimulus of labor. If the Christian be persuaded that the world shall not overcome him, that sin shall not slay him, that Satan shall not triumph over him, then will he take unto him the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and fight like a man and be more than conquerors. As it has been truly said, this is one of the reasons why British troops have so often won the fight, because the drummer boys know not how to beat a retreat, and the soldiers refused to believe in the possibility of defeat. 5. 
Here is consolation for us in the severest trials. Let us illustrate this point from the case of Job, for it is difficult to conceive one more acute and extreme than this. You know how severe, how many, and how protracted were those afflictions. You know how far Satan was permitted to proceed with him. You know how his wife turned against, and his so-called friends tantalized him. His cup of trouble was indeed filled to the brim. Yet we find him looking above his afflictions and censorious critics exclaiming, He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Chapter 23, verse 10. Weigh well those words, and bring to mind the situation of the one who uttered them. Observe that there was no doubt or uncertainty in his mind about the issue of his afflictions. It was not, I fear, I shall perish in the furnace, for he refused to allow those fiery trials to turn him into a skeptic. Nor did he merely cherish a flattering hope that things might possibly be well with him at the end and to say, I may come forth as gold. No, there was the undoubting, positive conviction, I shall, shall. Oh, my reader, Job saw the bright light in the cloud Chapter 37, verse 21, he drew comfort from what assured Cowper when he wrote those lines. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Job knew that God maketh all things work together for good to them that love him, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28. And therefore he knew there could be no possibility of his perishing in the fires. And why was there no doubting as to the outcome of his trials? Because he could say, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and therefore could he add, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. That was the ground of his confidence, nothing in himself. That was what caused him to triumphantly exclaim, I shall come forth as gold. Cheer up, fellow believer. The process may be painful, but the end is sure. The path may be rough, and you may feel faint, but the prospect is entrancing and certain. 6. Here is cause for praise. Why should I be found still holding on my way when so many who made a bright profession and who appeared to make much faster progress in spiritual things than I did have long ago dropped out of the race and have gone right back into the world? Certainly not because I was any better by nature. No, I freely ascribe all the glory unto God, who has so graciously ministered unto me and continued to work in me, who has been so long-suffering and recovered me when I strayed. Oh, what thanks are due unto Him! How often have I had occasion to say, He restoreth 
my soul. Psalm 23, 3, as he did Abraham's, Jacob's, Peter's. Thus I may say with David, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Psalm 89, 1, not today or tomorrow, but forever. Not only when I come to the brink of the Jordan, but after I have passed safely through it, the high praises of his faithfulness shall be the theme of my song throughout eternity. 7. Here is a powerful incentive to confirm Christians in their spiritual lives and to spur them unto the duties of piety. This is evident from what regeneration works in them. All the arguments drawn from the possibility of the apostasy of saints are derived from the terror of dreadful threatenings and the fear of eternal punishment, whereas those taken from the assurances conveyed by the everlasting covenant breathe nothing but the sweetness of grace. Since the children of God have received the spirit of adoption whereby they cry, Father, Father, Romans 8, 15, they are more powerfully drawn by the cords of love than by the scourge of horror. Moreover, since all acceptable obedience springs from gratitude, then that which most effectually promotes gratitude must be the most powerful spring of obedience. And as to whether a grace bestowed by the Lord is perpetual or one which may be lost is likely to inspire the deepest gratitude, we leave to the judgment of our readers. The more firmly be secured the reward of duty, the more diligent shall we be in performing duty. 8. Here is an incentive to practical godliness. If Christian perseverance is one of continuance in the path of obedience and holiness, then will the saints make diligent use of the aids which God has provided for them and eschew the contrary. Especially will they be encouraged to ask for and seek after the grace which God has promised. As it is a sight and sense of Christ being crucified because of my heinous sins which produces evangelical repentance Zechariah 12:10. so it is a realization of the immutability of God's purpose the unchangeableness of his love and the preciousness of his promises which strengthen faith and inflame love to serve and please him this twofold doctrine of divine preservation and perseverance in holiness supplies effectual motives unto piety. Negatively, it removes discouragement by letting us know that our denials of self, mortifications of the flesh, and efforts to resist the devil are not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15:58, Galatians 6, 9. Positively, it places upon us the most powerful obligations to live unto God, to show forth his praises, and adorn the doctrine we profess. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, 9. 
Here we are shown the need of continual diligence in order to persevere unto the end. But, says the Arminian, I would have concluded the very opposite, since final perseverance be guaranteed that is due to his misconception. God has declared the righteous shall hold on his way, not become slack and sit down, still less that he will forsake it for the way of the ungodly. That very promise is the best means of producing the desired result. If a man could be definitely assured that in a certain line of business he would make a fortune, would such assurance cause him to refuse that business or lead him to lie in bed all day? No. Rather, would it be an incentive to diligence in order to prosper? Napoleon believed he was the man of destiny. Did that conviction freeze his energies? No, the very opposite. God's promising a thing unto his children causes them to pray for the same with greater confidence, earnestness, and importunity. God hath promised to bless our use of lawful means, and therefore we employ them with diligence and expectation. 10. Here is a truth to humble us. Admittedly, it has been rested by antinomians and perverted unto the feeding of a spirit of presumption, but it is ungodly men, and not the saints, who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness, Jude 4. Different far is the effect of this truth upon the regenerate. It works in them a sense of their own insufficiency, causing them to look outside of themselves for help and strength. So far from rendering them slothful, it deepens their desires after holiness and makes them seek it more earnestly. As the Christian realizes, Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. He is moved to pray. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes diligently. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for herein do I delight. Psalm 119, 4, 5, and 35. The more he is taught of the Spirit, the more will he cry. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. Psalm 119.117 Chapter 11 Conclusion It now remains for us to gather up a few loose ends to summarize what has been before us, make a practical application of the whole and our present task is completed. Not that we have said anything like all that could be said thereon, yet we have sought to set before the reader the principal aspects of this subject, and to preserve a due balance between the divine and human sides of it. God's operations in connection therewith, and the Christian's concurrence therein. Much of the opposition which has been raised against what is termed the danger 
dangerous tendency of this truth arose from a defective view of the same through failure to apprehend that the perseverance of the saints exhibited in the scriptures is their continuance in faith and holiness that the one who has made infallible promise they shall reach the desired goal has also decreed they shall tread the one path which leads to it that the means as well as the end are ordained by him, and that he moves them to make diligent use of those means and blesses and makes effectual their labor in the same. That for which we have contended throughout these chapters is steadfastness and holiness, constancy in believing, and in bringing forth the fruits of righteousness. Saving faith is something more than an isolated act. It is a spiritual dynamic, a principle of action, which continues to operate in those who are the favored subjects of it. This is brought out very clearly and decisively in the great faith chapter. In Hebrews 11, the Holy Spirit sets before us the faith of Abel, of Enoch, of Noah, of Abraham, and Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. And after describing various exercises and fruits of the same, declares these all died in faith. Verse 13, not one of them apostatized from the same. The faith spoken of, as the context shows, was both a justifying and sanctifying one, and those who had received the same from God not only lived by it, but died in it. Theirs was a faith which wore and lasted, which overcame obstacles and triumphed over difficulties, which endured to the end. True, the patriarchs had to wrestle against their natural unbelief, and as the inspired records show, more than once they were tripped up by the same. Yet, they continued fighting and emerged conquerors. The Christian is required to continue as he began. He is to daily own his sins to God, and he is daily to renew the same acts of faith and trust in Christ and his blood, which he exercised at the first. Instead of counting upon some past experience, he is to maintain a present living on Christ. If he continues to cast himself on the Redeemer, putting his salvation wholly in his hands, then he will not, cannot fail him. But in order to cast myself upon Christ, I must be near him. I cannot do so while following him afar off. And to be near him, I must be in separation from all that is contrary to him. Communion is based upon an obedient walk. John 15:10. The one cannot be without the other. And for the maintenance of this, I must continue to show the same diligence I did when first convicted of my lost estate. When I perceived that sin was my worst enemy, that I was a rebel against God and his wrath upon me, and when I fled to Christ for refuge, surrendering myself to his lordship and trusting entirely to the sufficiency of his sacrifice to save me from my sins, their dominion, their pollution, and their guilt. 
Show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Hebrews 6, 11. The self-same earnestness and pains which actuated my heart and regulated my acts when I first sought Christ must be continued unto the end of my earthly course. This means persevering in a holy life, in the things which are appointed by and are pleasing to God. And unto this the servants of God are to be constantly urging the saints. Ministerial exhortation unto duty is needful unto those who are sincere in the practice of it, that they may abide and continue therein. John Owen In no other way can the full assurance of hope, a confident expectation of the issue or outcome, be scripturally maintained. The Christian has to be constant in giving the same diligence to the things of God and the needs of his soul as he did at the outset. He said to the end that they might know that they had not reached the goal and were therefore to think of further progress. He mentioned diligence that they might know they were not to sit down idly but to strive in earnest. And who, think you, my reader, was the author of that quotation? None other than John Calvin. How grievously has Calvinism been perverted and misrepresented. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Hebrews 6.12 The apostle here warns against the vice, which is the antithesis of the virtue previously enjoined, for slothfulness is the opposite of diligence. The indolence dehorted is in each of us by nature, for spiritual laxity is not something peculiar to those of a lazy disposition. The evil principle of the flesh remains in every Christian, and that principle hates and therefore is opposed to the things of God. But the flesh must be resisted, and the desires of the spirit or principle of grace Heeded. When conscious of this indisposition unto practical holiness, this native enmity against the same, the believer must pray with renewed earnestness. Draw me, we will run after thee. Song of Solomon 1.4 Order my steps and thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Psalm 119.133 It is this which distinguishes the true child of God from the anti-professor, his wrestling with the Lord in secret to enable him to press forward in the race set before him. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The immediate reference is to the patriarchs who, by continuing steadfast in the faith, persevering in hope amid all the trials to which they were subjected, had no entrance into the promised blessings. Their faith was far more than a notional one. It was influential and practical, causing them to live as strangers and pilgrims in this scene. See Hebrews 11:13. The word for patience here is usually rendered long-suffering. It is a grace which makes its 
possessor refuse to be daunted by the difficulties of the way or be so discouraged by the trials and oppositions encountered as to desert the course or forsake the path of duty. It is just such faith and patience which are required of the saint in every age, for there never has been and never will be any journeying to heaven on flowery beds of ease. If the continued exercise of such graces was required of the patriarchs, persons who were so high in the love and favor of God, then let us not imagine they may be dispensed with in our case. The things promised are not obtained for faith and patience, but they are entered into through them. Assurance of final perseverance neither renders needless weariness and care, 1 Corinthians 10.12, nor the unwearied use of the appointed means of grace, Galatians 6.9. We must distinguish sharply between confidence in Christ and a weakening of the security of the flesh. The teaching that carnal security and presumption is no bar to eternal glory is a doctrine of the devil. David prayed, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Psalm 119.33 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.